Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Russia says it's interested in nuclear arms control talks with the U.S. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said yesterday that Russia is interested in nuclear arms control talks with the U.S., but agreed that such negotiations are unlikely to take place at this point. What does this really mean? Is the U.S. going to dismiss this in the same manner the U.S. dismissed President Putin's security demands? For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. Quote, we are interested in such talks as we believe that it's necessary to continue talks and discuss this issue, given the tectonic shifts in the field of European and even global security. Such talks are necessary. The whole world needs them, Peskov said. Uh, he was responding to a question about comments from U.S. Ambassador to Russia John Sullivan, who said it's unlikely arms control will take place at the moment. Your thoughts, Mark Schloboda. Okay, so one of the few, the, 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 probably the only shining moment of Russian-U.S. relations with the Biden administration was the, the very beginning when uh, Biden um, uh, approved an extension of the New START Treaty, which was the last building block, the last piece of the Cold War um, Cold War era uh, nuclear security infrastructure between the United States and the Soviet Union and then Russia. It was the, the bedrock piece that limited the amount of warheads uh, and missiles uh, you know, pointed at each other at any any direct moment of time. So a a quantitative limit. The U.S. had already pulled out of everything else: the Short and Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Anti Ballistic Missile Treaty, and uh, and uh, the Open Skies Treaty, and a host of of other more conventional treaties between the U.S. and Russia that they just ignored. Um, and we're still dealing with the two countries in the world that have the largest nuclear arsenals by far. Um, and there is a host, there is a geopolitical situation that's in flux, uh, in part at least because of Russia's intervention in Ukraine, which was done in part because NATO refused to give Russia uh, security guarantees uh, and or provide any type of common security architecture for Europe. So um, and there is a host of new weapons, hypersonic weapons, uh, uh, nuclear drones, uh, drones, underwater drones capable of carrying nuclear weapons, it's all new host of uh, weapons out there that are not covered by any kind of treaty, which makes there's no rules to the game, which makes the situation far more dangerous than the first Cold War. And everyone 
security in the world would benefit from the U.S. and Russia establishing rules. But the U.S. has tended to treat um, arms control talks with Russia not as something that would make us all safer, but as a something as a gift to Russia when Russia does something the U.S. likes. I think that is an extremely arrogant and dangerous mentality. Uh, and the longer time goes on without providing a greater uh, framework for all of these emergent technologies and geopolitical situation uh, that continues to leave us all in increased threat of the outbreak of, of a serious strategic meaning nuclear conflict. Well, I, and, and, but, you know, that is aligned with the neocon sociopathic belief in entitlement, that anything they do for someone else is something that these great beings bestow upon the lesser of us, you know, whom they, they tolerate, you know. So from their perspective, Russia is not an equal. Nobody is an equal to them. So any deal that they make with someone else, you should be, you know, kissing their rings and standing at their feet, thanking them for they allowing you the effrontery to exist. Um, but my, my, I do think this. I do think it's a good idea for Russia to always keep the door open for and say, look, all right, we can't negotiate with you guys now, but I'm sure one of these days soon, you guys, your people have nothing left to eat but your Ukrainian flags, and you'll, and maybe you can um, use them for blankets because you won't have any gas, and maybe by then you'll figure out that you need to negotiate with us. And when that happens, the door will still be open for negotiations. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it is. I would say high-minded of Russia when we're talking a thing as arms control framework. Everything else should be beneath that on the foreign policy, you know, priority list. And someone needs to be the adult in the room, and it would seem that that position is always left to Russia. Exactly. Well, that was a much more intellectual way of stating what I said, Mark. So it's a good <laughs> thing we got smart people on this uh, on this show, even if I ain't one of them. I, I've been I've been practicing brevity. <laughs> <laughs> Three NATO nations block Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov's plane from visiting Serbia. Lavrov denounced the move, calling it unthinkable. Bulgaria, North Macedonia, and Montenegro closed their airspace to a Russian plane that would have carried Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to Serbia, causing the trip to be canceled. He slammed the move as an unthinkable thing. Uh, a sovereign state has been deprived of its right to conduct foreign policies. Uh, the international activities of Serbia on the Russian uh, track have been blocked. Your thoughts, uh, Mark Schloboda, this to me is just another example. Not, And I don't know why Foreign Minister Lavrov was going to Serbia. I don't know what he was planning, who he was planning to meet, what he was planning to talk about. But actions of this nature... Uh, do not lead to friendly negotiations on any issue. Yeah, this is a new escalation. This is blocking even diplomatic flights. Um, this is, uh, again, it's unprecedented. It's unheard of. Um, obviously, it is taking the position that Serbia is no longer a sovereign country. It is completely surrounded by the EU. It is... A by hook or crook, it is to join the EU and NATO one 
day one way or another, and it is not allowed to conduct its own face-to-face foreign policy with Russia uh, because uh, these EU countries now view Russia as the enemy. Um, And when you can't even – I mean this is a child's maneuver. This is a, a child throwing a tantrum. Because, of course, we do live in the 21st century, and if there's vital business between Russia and Serbia, they can always conduct it online, video, by phone, by internet, by telegram if they have to, right? Some, they can communicate to each other. Uh, but by preventing this flight from Russia's foreign minister, this is a child throwing a tantrum, and it's going to once again – have to lead to a response by Russia. And now each other's diplomats can't even go back and forth across each other's airspace. And I will point out that Russia controls a relatively large portion of the world's airspace since it is the largest planet on the Earth, uh, comprising one-sixth of the total Earth's surface. So I think Montenegro and Bulgaria and North Macedonia are going to lose out on that one. But well, that's just me. it's good, Mark. I'll tell you why. Because these people are immature and they are demonstrating to Russia exactly what and who they are. And as I said, the time will come when they need to negotiate with Russia and Russia will have a very clear idea of what it is that they're dealing with. Speaking of that, what's with this crazy uh, Ukrainian official who, you know, were, I mean, just came up with Which these, one? these Which one? exactly. <laughs> I've got to be very specific. But it was a, there was this woman who was making uh, just mad Um, claims of atrocities, and apparently when some organizations decided to do investigations on these atrocities so they could work on that cause, they found out she had no proof whatsoever. She just made them up out of thin air, and she got fired. What's the story on that? Yeah, okay, so uh, what you're talking about there is the Ukrainian ombudswoman, um, uh, Ludmila Denisova. Um, and for uh, the ombudswoman, the ombud position in any you know government is one who particularly looks into uh, human rights uh, violations, both supposedly conducted by the government, but more often they're they're citing other uh, countries' violation of human rights against their their citizens. Uh, that's usually the way it works out. And and basically, since the start of the intervention, and actually well before that, this crazy woman just makes stuff up. Right. She she makes the most salacious tabloid uh, spread on the Internet, you know, with no verification, no proof. Um, and, and she's, uh, you know, reading it out as if it's fact. It's being quoted by Western presses around the world. And she's got a real fixation on the idea that every Russian is, is a soldier is raping Ukrainian women, raping one year old Ukrainian babies. I mean, it, it's real. Uh, um you know, um, uh, kind disgusting of, uh, stuff. Boris Badenov type ridiculous, yeah, d- disgusting, ridiculous stuff. And right away, I have to tell you that I never actually, I, I saw who was saying it. I read some of the headlines and I never bothered to read into it any further or to try to argue against it because I was sure it was complete nonsense. This woman has a history of this. And finally, 
her evidenceless claims drew so much attention because mostly because Western NGOs were saying, oh, my God, this is so awful. You have to provide us all of our, your evidence so that we can, uh, you know, investigate and do a report on this. And Ukraine and their ombudswoman was like, uh, yeah, Russia bad. And that was it. And finally, it became such an embarrassment that they were forced to fire her uh, from her position for making stuff up without any proof, because the Western NGOs were like, look, we want we want to open cases. We want to investigate the evil Russians. But you can't make stuff up about this because it discredits the whole field and your country. And that's exactly what it did. Not that it has her not that having been removed has stopped her because just you know, on social media and in, you know, speaking to the press, she continues to, uh, you know, uh, fictionalize her stories. This is very similar to stories that we heard out of Libya when the U.S. government was making claims that uh, the uh, government of Muammar Gaddafi, his troops were raping the rebels and were even providing rape drugs to them. And uh, the same thing uh, in a very similar vein to the idea that Iraqi soldiers were tossing Kuwaiti babies out of incubators. This is the type of salacious, emotive things that, you know, obviate the need for reason, for logic, for evidence, and demand an action without any accountability. They are designed specifically to push these psychological hot buttons and and to temporarily remove the idea of due process and restraint and evidence and these sorts of things. And they're, they're incredibly effective about this. I mean, just take a look at the Western media and how much coverage these stories got over the last three months uh, and how much coverage the retraction and the announcement that, oh, that was all made up and the woman got fired got, which was practically none. Russia says it will take more Ukrainian territory to defend against longer range weapons. Rocket rocket systems, the U.S. and Britain are sending Ukraine can hit targets up to 50 miles away. So Sergei Lavrov says, uh, well, we're going to push you further back, Ukraine, and um, further from our border to be sure you want to use these weapons, you're going to be landing these things in your own territory. Yeah, I mean, that is just another way of retorting. Russia has already also said that they will um, hit uh, Ukrainian decision-making centers, which means in the U.S. terms, command and control, i.e. will attack the politicians making the decisions. Um, and it's another way to express the outrage that the U.S. is providing long-range missile systems. Although, to be perfectly frank, I think it was pretty clear that Russia is going to remove a lot more of the territory controlled by the Kiev regime, regardless of whether they were given these missile systems or not. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your newfound brevity. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Well, uh, the Mexican president, AMLO, is not attending Biden's America Summit over exclusion of other countries. The U.S. didn't invite Venezuela, didn't invite Nicaragua, didn't invite Cuba. In a blow to Biden, uh, Obrador, he said this yesterday, that he wasn't coming, and I don't think he's there. For insight, let's go live to Los Angeles, California, to our next guest. He's the co-host of Fault Lines. He is Jamaral Thomas. As always, sir, welcome back. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank so you. what's happening on the ground? Give us uh, give us your insight, your input, uh, what you are experiencing in Los Angeles. You are absolutely right. AMLO is not showing up, President Albador of Mexico, and you enunciated the reasons exactly. Um, his belief was that he didn't like um, the exclusion of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. And so to show his condemnation of that, he basically didn't show up. And it's not just him. There were other countries that basically either didn't show up or lowered the presence of the person who was basically coming here to get across their displeasure um, at that particular act. I had the opportunity to accidentally, actually. I'm not even you know, in my stuff. I just came here for my press pass and all. But Ken Salazar just so happened to be in my path as I um, was coming out. And I was able to basically forcibly get him a question. And I asked him straightforwardly, look, the summit has been full of controversy at this point. And because it's been full of controversy at this point, and the reasons, because of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela not being allowed, um, can you articulate AMLO's issue? Meaning, can you explain AMLO's issue, and do you agree with it? Basically, we're trying to get him to kind of confront this notion of, look, is it right or wrong for U.S. policy to basically exclude those nations, and can you justify why he was doing it? Meaning, even if you disagree with the guy, can you explain why he's saying it, and why do you disagree with the way that he was saying it? That was the point I was trying to get at. His response was basically, the United States is against authoritarian regimes, and we don't want to basically bring them into, the, into this. And so, yeah, no, we're not doing that. And also, we don't like Russia. Just a heads up because you work for Sputnik. So, okay, fair enough. Thank you. And at that point, the press agent got him and they rushed him away. Here's the rub, though. We are perfectly fine with right-wing or uh, despot governments. I mean, Saudi Arabia, for God's sake. They have crucifixions. I mean, let, let's be honest. And then if we were talking about some of the Gulf states, beyond that, the kill squads that we were working with in South America, the coup leaders or the, the, the right-wing regimes that we were installing in South America, we had zero issue working with those people. What this boils down to is some people are in our orbit, some are not. And also, one of the criteria they were talking about is they're dealing with COVID. Cuba has a medical system that is unparalleled. And the number of doctors and everything else, they've been sending those people out to deal with COVID. They've been creating vaccinations. Cuba has been an A student on this issue of COVID. The United States has lost a million people. And it's like, how do you justify that? How do you square that? These guys are actually doing good work on those fronts. What does it matter? Meaning, what do you have to do with how the way their governments are arranged? The summit is not about how their governments are arranged. This is about cooperation, economic, et cetera. And making that exclusion, yeah, caused consternation in many of the other countries, as it should have caused consternation in the other countries, especially with the hypocrisy associated with it. So, so far, that's what's going on the ground. Um, it's a lot of buzz here. There are protesters outside. I had the opportunity to talk to the protesters. One was protesting the Ortega government, basically saying he's a dictator, and the guy wanted freedom. 
I asked him, what do you mean by freedom? Can you articulate it? And he said, some of the jails. I said, well, the United States is 5% of the world's population and 25% of their population are jails. Are we a free country? And is we, are we the standard that you're basically trying to get to? Meaning, if your issue is jails and we have more people in our jails than anybody else, is that a standard of freedom that you're looking for? Um, so he understood what I was getting at with that. And then he changed freedom of speech, freedom of movement, et cetera. We just want freedom. And so I don't know if he even knows what freedom is in the context of the, that he wants. Um, he didn't seem to be all that clear on it, but he definitely knew he wanted it. From the standpoint of the other protesters, they were talking about um, basically Biden's form, um, immigration policy. Now, we've had people on lawyers who deal with immigration that have explained to me, and I am utterly astonished at the way our immigration system works. You could have people who are basically in the country for like 10 years, and even despite how long they've been in the country, there's only, what, like a 10% Amount, I think it's less than 10% of the people who basically get the agreement to stay in the country. So that means that people will be building families, creating relationships, et cetera, and then get the nah, hey, I need you to leave. <laughs> so it's that part, right? And on top of that, they were basically arguing that, look, the U.S. has laws on the books already that need to be updated regarding immigration. And whatever this law is, he was saying it goes back even during Ronald Reagan's era where they were messing with it. But it's something about a stay or resident law, that if a person is here, regardless of how they got here, for a period of time, there's no crime, there are um, um, communities or, or conduits or connected to the community, that those people would be allowed to basically get citizenship. Now, the point that I made to him was, look, what I asked him, he also made the point of Democrats and Republicans basically use politics, meaning Republicans basically use it to attack. Democrats use it to basically act as if they're going to do something, holding it over their heads. By the same token, though, none of them do anything on it in real terms. So his thing was he wants the stay law. That's what he wants, an update. I asked him, well, look, when Biden first got in office and Biden kind of made this thing where he was like going to accept kids but not adults, and you had this kind of weird situation where all of these people basically was bringing their kids into the country while – you know, not being there, meaning it created a crisis at the border because it created an incentive that wasn't necessarily in the U.S. interest. He, I asked them, would a plan like that also do that? Meaning if you're going to say that anybody who comes into the country, regardless of where they're from, can stay in the country if they're here for a period of time without any kind of conflict, then wouldn't that create an incentive for those people to basically come to the country? Well, he didn't necessarily have an answer for that one. <laughs> I mean, the answer was obvious. And I even asked them about U.S. foreign policy and how that U.S. foreign policy creates a context that those people try to leave in the first place using um, the gentleman from, what is the name, uh, Hernandez from Honduras, where we escort the previous dirtbag lefty, quote unquote, president out of Honduras because we didn't like that guy. He was a lefty. And we stick the guy out of the pajamas. Hillary Clinton talks about it, but, they, but that's not a coup. Taking the president, the military taking the president out of the pajamas. Um, that's not a coup. Honduras gets, uh, Honduras gets in. Now, Honduras is caught saying, I am trying to get cocaine into the nose of every gringo in the U.S. Meaning the guy created a narco state with him as basically the head of that narco state. We put him in. And so now this prosecution basically saying they're trying to pre arrest the president of Honduras. And I think even they might have, they're going to export him now or deport him to the United States for prosecution. So what I actually, my point to him was we basically created a fire in that country. And the people who want to leave Honduras, are they insane for wanting to leave it at the point at which you get gangs and drugs and a president that doesn't necessarily care about the country itself? We created a context that basically incentivized people to want to leave the country. And it's not just Honduras. It's many of those countries. Honduras is just the last one that's online. What does that 
have to do with foreign policy, right? Does that have an effect on foreign policy? And does your protest kind of hint at that also? He agreed with me on everything I said. He made the point of saying, look, people want to live and people want to live in a safe place. And that the U.S. has to get to the point where it deals with its own internal affairs in such a way that it makes those other countries better because we're not necessarily doing anything to those countries because we're focused on our own affairs. It was a very interesting interview um, with the guy. And whether I entirely agree with him on all of it or not, they're definitely passionate. They're definitely loud. Um, I had to come into the building because otherwise you could just hear them out screaming, singing, um, and doing Native American chants. So, so far, that's where things lay on the ground. Well, interesting things. So uh, there, um, how is it working there? Where the, you know, is it going, where, where is it? Is, is, is it like a hotel or something, wherever the location? And outside, are there a lot of, um, are there a lot of uh, protesters outside, a few protesters? And I understand there's some events that some organizations are having also. Right. So this is at the Los Angeles Convention Center. That's what this is being held. They're not a huge amount, not yet. I mean, because technically the event doesn't really start until tomorrow. Um, but like the plenary sessions and everything like that, there are events on the side um, that are loosely affiliated with the, with this, um, with the Summit for Americas. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is going to have J- John Kerry along with other people from other countries, the tech leaders and everything else. Um, there's another one that's taking place that I met a woman who was at my hotel with, she dealt, uh, it's not coming to mind, but she basically um, asked her for an interview to have a conversation about it. I think she deals with the issues of immigration also, but they're going to have their own kind of side thing that's taking place. Um, there's going to be two or three groups that I know of that are having things. In fact, they're sending emails often, basically saying this group or that group is going to meet on the side and those meetings are taking place at different locations. In fact, I think I even have... Um, let's see, like, so let's see for Thursday, head of delegations, right? To the summit. Oh, today they're also having, um, arrivals. So Ecuador, um, I believe what is the other countries, Ecuador and some other South American countries are basically arriving today. And basically the plane is going to come in. The press is going to give the opportunity. I guess take pictures and everything else, um, potentially talk to those leaders as they come through, um, that's going to take place a little bit later today. But, yeah, there's several events. Let me see. There's one called the Ninth Civil Society Forum that's organized by the Organization for American States. There's one called the Sixth Youth Americas Forum that's organized by Young America Business Trust. There's one called the Fourth CEO Summit of Americas organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And that is the one that's going to have Jim Carrey as, I guess, the headline. Um, and that one in addition to other business leaders in the country. So, so what about the um – uh, what about the People's Summit, which is supposed to be the counter to the U.S.-based Summit of the Americas? Now, I have not had the opportunity to speak with Margaret Flowers yet for the People's Summit. Um, I do want to, because I do want to be able to go there to have a conversation with them also in coordination with it. But I found out about that almost like two days ago, like it was almost immediate, two or three days ago. So after I get off the phone with you, I'm going to see if I can find her email address, and I'm going to ship her an email basically asking to see if she would allow um, me to come there also as press. So fingers crossed on that one. I haven't talked to her in a very, very, very long time. It's been years. Um, But I am interested in going to that one, definitely. In terms of what you're seeing on the street, um, not necessarily immediately across the street from the convention center, but just uh, as you're traversing the, the the neighborhood, so to speak. Uh, what's your what's your general sense? It's interesting. 
I mean, I've been, you know, have, not having my car here. I have the opportunity to basically talk to, like, the cab drivers and everything else. And, you know me, I, I tend to talk to anybody, right? They say you can talk to a fork. And so when I'm in cabs and everything else, oftentimes those guys are engaging me in conversation. And oftentimes they trend political, especially when it's like, oh, yeah, I'm here for the America Summit. I got in conversation with the guy this morning about homelessness in the country, in the city and everything else. And, like, dude, this is a Democrat supermajority state. How on earth do you have people at like eight o'clock at night getting ready for bed and they're getting ready for bed outside in front of businesses, stores and everything else? They're all over the place as you're walking through. And, and you can't you can't go under a highway overpass in right. Los Angeles and it not be a, an encampment. Exactly. It's just, it, it's they're everywhere. And, there, like, and one more point. There's no of any public piece of grass has a tent on it. Wow. Yeah, it's all over the place. It's amazing. Like, I was shocked. No, I was, oh, no, I was just saying, you're right. I was shocked by it. Um, but I was also able to engage some of these guys about Ukraine, about politics in general, where the cab driver was like, hey, I appreciate your point of view. I was like, yeah, because I'm right. <laughs> like, you can't challenge anything I'm saying on that point of view. Right. You may not like it, but it's what it is. But interestingly enough, the people are aware that it's taking place, whether they are internally engaged. They're definitely aware. Jamaral Thomas, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to having you back. Be safe and uh, stay with us for a minute, please. And uh, we we look forward to having you back. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, stay with me, please. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Politico has a piece, Biden wants to get out more, seething that his standing is now worse than Trump's. Frustrations are mounting, and the window for a political revival is closing. The window is closing? Well, for further insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political activist, analyst, independent journalist, and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, I was kind of surprised at the closing part, too. So political opens with President Joe Biden and his aides have grown increasingly frustrated by their inability to turn the tide against a cascade of challenges threatening to overwhelm the administration. Soaring global inflation, rising fuel prices, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a Supreme Court poised to take away a constitutional right, a potentially resurgent pandemic, a Congress too deadlocked to tackle sweeping gun safety legislation even amid an onslaught of mass shootings. Nico, uh, they ignore Biden's inability to deliver on hardly any, if any, of the promises he made on the campaign trail, and they don't take responsibility for his contribution to some of the things that they list as being problems. Rising fuel prices, you don't fight with Russia, 
that's not as big of an issue. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, it wasn't an invasion. But if you respected Putin's request for security guarantees, we wouldn't be having this problem. Nico House. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that in all the strategies that they said they planned on implementing, you know, including attacking Republicans more because that's, you know, that's been so effective thus far, uh, you know, they haven't actually listed, you know, do stuff for the people. You know, that's a pretty simple one. Like, do anything for the people. You know what I'm saying? Not everything. Just do anything for the people, man. But they haven't done anything. Like, let keep the promises. Like, you haven't even done the basic, like, keeping gas prices. Yeah, they weren't the best, you know, but they were way better than this. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, the things that Biden himself has the ability to control, like, for example— in a state of emergency, he can limit the price of uh, gas, like the barrels um, of oil. He can limit that. He's choosing not to. That's the difference. Like you said with the, the Ukraine crisis, he chose not to respect the sovereignty of Russia regarding the, their relationship with Ukraine. They chose, uh, you know, in this administration and administrations prior to literally arm neo-Nazis, which led to the bombing of eastern Ukraine. Like, the, the, the problems that persist in the state are almost solely due to the government. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there are circumstances like inflation. Like, okay, there are a lot of things that contribute to inflation, but you know what doesn't help it? Uh, you know, fighting proxy wars that, like, you're, you're lying about fighting and, and, and basically allowing the robber barons and the oil and gas industries to, to screw over the entire country just so they can capitalize on a war that's, once again, facilitated and cultivated by the U.S. Like, you don't want to win. Like, you want to win without, like, what they're upset about isn't that they're losing. What they're upset about is we're trying all the old strategies we've used to people to, for people to ignore these problems and they're not ignoring them. We don't know what's going on. That's what they're upset about. Let me read this to you because they're whining about they can't do anything. Well, I would argue he did, that Joe Biden did do something, and I'm going to read Joe Biden's exact words. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did talk about food shortages, and it's going to be real. The price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. So they're talking about all the issues. But Joe Biden himself said the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. So I don't want to hear from Joe Biden that he can't do anything. He did do anything. And what he did created this problem. And now they're whining, saying they can't fix a problem that they created. Wait a minute. And what did he call it? Putin's price hike. There we go. That's what Joe Biden called it. This is Putin's price hike. No, Joe. <laughs> You ignored the obvious, and now it's hitting you in the head. Yep, you ignore the obvious. And, like, the, the, wor- the thing that worries me about these gas prices is that when you have countries like Saudi Arabia and China and obviously Russia who and India to, to some degree who just all agree, like, yeah, we're not really going to respect anything y'all got going on over there. We don't support this war that y'all are pushing. Like, now they don't have an they don't have an incentive not to raise the prices across the board 
or like what Russia's doing, their main bank, I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with this, but their main bank is no longer doing any business whatsoever in U.S. dollars. You know what kind of flex that is? That is a super flex. And it's because they have no fear whatsoever of the rep- economic repercussions. They're fine. The ruble is doing better than it's ever been. Correct, Amundo. <laughs> so it's like when none of those countries, like I don't, I don't even know how we come out on the other side of this because they don't. There doesn't seem to be any real unification or unified effort behind exactly what the plan of attack is from NATO. Like, because some NATO countries are like, okay, yeah, let's do the sanctions, but then some are like, well, not all the sanctions. Hold on, we got some business that we have to do with them still. And then the U.S. is just looking like they're just sitting there with, with mud on their face because they don't know. Uh, they thought that people were going to fall in line uh, and they haven't to the degree that they expected to. From a sanctions perspective, this was supposed to cripple the Russian economy. And as a result of the economic crash in Russia, there was supposed to be incredible public unrest in Russia which was supposed to put pressure on the Putin administration, cripple the administration, bring Russia to its knees, and then oust Vladimir Putin. That was their stated game plan. Regime change 101. I mean, I can't believe it, you know. They show Coach Popovich the same game plan 50 times, and Coach Popovich managed to beat it. Can Can you believe it? Can, can you believe it? Oh, God. You know, you, you're literally doing the same strategy that you've been doing. And by the way, the strategy hasn't really been all that successful lately. It didn't work on Maduro. It didn't work on Assad. It hasn't worked in Iran. Like, there are a lot of examples where it actually has not been successful in the last couple of decades. And yet they keep trying to pull. Not only are you trying to pull the strategy, uh, and it's, and it's a, a repetitive strategy that has been shown to not be successful now, but you're doing it on a, one of the largest superpowers in the world. And you couldn't even overthrow Iran. Uh, let me add. It's, it's oh, bizarre. Let me add something. You know, again, I'm an old school guy. And I, and I say this. My dad was a longshoreman. He was an old school tough guy. You know, he put on a hard hat when he went to work. The kind of person that I grew up in an environment where no excuses. Get it done. Yeah. I don't want to hear excuses. Hey, Garland, go do this. Well, Dad, I don't want to hear that. Shut up and do what you were told, <laughs> right? No excuses. Okay. My dad wasn't a longshoreman, but. I don't know that we weren't raised in the same exactly. house. Exactly. That was Go that ahead. generation. Okay. Yeah. But here, here, you know what I'm saying, Nico? My mom was the same way. You know, but here's my point. When I read this, it's bedeviling the president. The limits of the president are not well grasped. The responsibility is greater than the tools he has to fix it. I hear a whining chump. I hear weakness. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look, yeah. man, if I would, if the boats were out at sea and it's rough and there's a hurricane, I want to look to the captain and say, what do we do? Full ahead and do this and do that. Don't and, not say you better swim. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you, you look at the captain. He's reaching for his life preserver, huddled up in the corner, sucking his thumb. But you know what I mean? They don't exactly project strength. They seem like they are perplexed. They have no idea what to do. And they look terrible. Terribly, terribly weak. Nico House. His whole his whole uh, campaign, he was bragging about this ability that he has to work with the public Republicans across the aisle and get things done that uh, Donald Trump or even his Democratic competitors couldn't do. Like, that's what he was boasting about. 
the entire time. Like, because I remember everybody trying to figure out the the difference between him and Bloomberg, for example. And it's like, well, y'all are both really weird and touchy-feely rich guys who sell out the country. You know, but his thing was, I'm really weird and old and touchy-feely, but at least I can get things done. And he's proving to be a failure. Like, literally, we could have just kept Trump for this. I'm not even joking. That's where where I'm at with it. I'm like, we should just kept Trump in. You know what I'm saying? At least I had decent gas. You know, my, my, you know, the, the whole country wasn't moving to, to, to various cities like, you know, Florida and, and inflation wasn't out the, out the roof and the housing market is on this crazy bubble that I don't know if it's ever going to burst at this point just because of all the uh, singling circumstances. Like we literally could have just kept Trump and at least we know the president would have actually been criticized by, uh, for the most, for the most part, the mainstream media, even though a lot of it's false criticism, to be honest, but, um, you know, and uh, by us. We, we have no problem holding Trump accountable. And yeah, we, have, we, we can hold Biden accountable. But then you have articles like this. We just don't understand. People don't comprehend how limited his ability as the leader of the free world is. But, he, but Biden has no problem throwing out executive orders when he feels like getting something done for the elite. Isn't that interesting? In crisis after crisis, the White House has found itself either limited or helpless in its efforts to combat the forces pummeling them. Morale inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is plummeting. Nico, last week, Politico reported at least 21 black staffers have left the White House since last year or are planning to leave soon. Some of those who remain say it's no wonder why. They describe a work environment with little support from their superiors and fewer chances for promotion. The departures have been so pronounced that according to one current and one former official, some black aides have adopted a term Blacksick. <laughs> oh, oh man! I guess they didn't want to have to pay Candace Owens for the Blexit, huh? <laughs> but I'm not. You know what's interesting? This actually reminds me of the uh, during the election, people were trying to. Uh, they asked me what was the difference between Kamala and Biden. Like, why was it so important that she ran? I was like, well, the people who back Kamala, they have no problem with Biden's policies. What they have is about the. They have a problem with the limited opportunity a Biden candidacy will provide the quote-unquote marginalized people, like, uh, you know, the Simone Sanders. Like, yeah, she ended up on Biden's, you know, uh, uh, campaign. But, like, in reality, what has she gotten in that administration from Biden for basically running cover? A show on MSNBC. Well, that, yeah, but she was already on CNN. Or whichever whichever network is all all the same. But you get what I'm saying, though? It's like, but, like, people wanted, like, People who aren't, you know, camera friendly, they wanted staffing opportunities and, and they know like he's not about to hire a bunch of young well, he might hire a bunch of young women, let me be honest, right? Okay. He might hire a bunch of but he's not about to hire a bunch of black women. He's not about to hire a bunch of like Latinos or people from the LGBTQ community. That's not his thing. He's gonna it's it's the old guard. And he brought back in exactly who we expected him to bring back in, which is the old guard. And of the the staff that was hired there that may be black, they're token. And I think that a lot of them are realizing, oh, man, we're just talking like, yeah, 100 percent. Real quick, real quickly, real quickly before before we get out. He's going to be on Jimmy Kimmel tonight. Tonight? Yeah. When's the basketball game? Basketball game tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Wednesday. 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 I'm sorry. Wednesday. So he's going to be on Jimmy Kimmel Wednesday night, the same night, game three, the NBA finals. And as I was saying to Garland before we came in here, I'd rather watch Clay Thompson struggle (laughs) playing for Golden State than watch Joe Biden struggle because at least with Klay Thompson, there's hope. 
Clay Thompson won't be sh- shaking hands with somebody. He won't be high-fiving with somebody on the court that don't even exist. Boom. Hey, but look, he's got a plan. He's got a plan. Listen to this. They're going to sharpen their attacks on Republicans aiming to point the GOP out of touch with mainstream America. And they're going to hope that the January 6th hearings will color the Republicans as two extremists. They got hope, man. Uh, I think that's a – how do you think their, their plans of hope are going to work? It's funny that they don't even plan on using the January 6th thing for accountability. They have no intention on doing it. They just admit it. No, we just want them to make look, we just want to make the Republicans look bad. So, which is like emblematic of everything we've been seeing from both parties, if we're being real. It's the same thing with the Durham investigation, right? It's really just to make the Democrats somewhat look bad and make it look like the Republicans are actually doing something. Like there's going to be like no, none of them have any intention on holding either party accountable, and it's just another reminder of it. But it's okay. I'm not going to be the one that loses. They ain't my party. Nico House, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. How long COVID could change the way we think about disability. The coronavirus pandemic has created a mass disabling event that experts liken to HIV, polio, or World War II, with millions suffering the long-term effects of infection with the virus. Many have found their lives dramatically changed and are grappling with what it means to be disabled. How serious of a problem is long COVID, and do we even... Have we even scratched the surface of understanding where this could take us? For insight, we turn to our next guest. She's a board-certified pediatrician. She's an obesity medicine specialist. She's a public health expert, and she has a telemedicine practice, AskDrYola.com. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So the dramatic influx of newly disabled Americans changes the calculus for disability advocates who have in recent years been uniting around a shared identity, pushing back against historic marginalization by affirming their self-worth and embracing their disabilities. Quote, we're taking a Big Ten approach in the disability community, according to Rebecca Vallis, a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. This is a Washington Post piece. Uh, Dr. Hancock, talk about long COVID and what this does in terms of the landscape of long-term disability. I, I think this is a very important conversation, especially as people have clearly moved away from this being the pandemic that we are still in because symptoms have uh, seemed to be milder. And I, in full disclosure, will let you know that my daughter just tested positive for COVID yesterday. And there was a heart drop moment when the test results came back because all I could think about is like the collective experience of what we've dealt with with COVID. And then what is her risk of long COVID? But then I remembered she got fully, she fully vaccinated. So it allowed me to breathe a little bit. Um, easier. We still have to think through, though, 
what is the consequence of so many people now coming down with COVID, especially when we are now dealing with what we're classifying again as the most infectious version of COVID-19 thus far. I think it's really important for people to truly understand how expansive long COVID symptoms are. Some folks feel like, oh, it's just a little bit of issues with your lungs and you will be all right. Currently, I have at least four patients in my practice who I usually see for nutrition-related consultations, either weight management or chronic disease management. They're now coming to see me in terms of long COVID, half of them, because they are not able to return back to work in full capacity. So I am literally filling out long-term or short-term for right now, short-term disability forms so that folks can be off of work using FEMLA, family emergency medical leave, for as long as they can. But at least two of them have now run out of short-term leave. Now the question is, do I file for disability or do I try to force myself to go back to work and work with whatever capacity I can? And even that for me as a clinician, having to fill out these forms, I don't know. I don't know what level of capacity my patients can show up as. You know, folks are dealing with just general fatigue. They'll go from their house to their driveway and feel like they've run a marathon. They will have um, symptoms that get worse after they have tried to to move or to think through and exercise. We now know that long COVID is connected to the, develop, the development of high blood pressure, of diabetes. And this is for people who did not have risk factors. That's what people really have to understand. And no one clearly knows what the mechanism of action is and who is going to go on to develop this, especially for those who are not vaccinated. And when you're dealing with this cadre of symptoms, because it could barely, it could just simply be decreased lung function or it could be complete brain fog where you can't remember the security code to your house, which has happened for some of my patients. And I have literally taken phone calls where people have been wailing because they are so depressed, depressed and anxious about the symptoms that they're experiencing and then trying to show up for work. Like it, it, for some people, it's literally impossible. And we have to really think through right now in the country, there are only 60 long COVID health systems where patients can actually be seen. And then there's not much to do because we still don't know how to manage through long COVID. And so while, all, while we're trying in the clinical space to figure all these things out, people are being impacted financially. They're being impacted relationally because they're not being able to fully show up as parents, as spouses, all of those things. And then it's impacting them clearly financially because even in, when they are showing up for work, they're not showing up at full capacity. Well, you know, I, I, I can tell you this. I had, I guess you'd call it short COVID because when I had Omicron, my symptoms weren't all that bad, you know, two weeks of tiredness. But afterwards, and I can imagine somebody going through this, I had an, a, a short term memory issue. I would and, and, and Wilmer can tell you here, I'd come in one day. Yeah, I left my computer at the bus stop the next day. Oh, I left my phone. Or I, I left my lost my you wallet. lost your wallet in I, the metro. Right. This went on for, I would say. About four to five weeks, it was bad, and then it slowly drifted away over the course of about, say, uh, twelve to eight to twelve weeks. But I can imagine if that was a long-term thing and I couldn't get 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 rid of it, it would significantly alter my life because it's like you go in one room, you don't remember why you were there, just like a blank kind of memory thing where you just don't remember at all what happened a couple minutes ago or why you set this down or did that. And it's weird because we always try to think, well, if I had that problem, I'd just do this or that. And it wasn't much I could do about that. Luckily for me, like I said, I think it was short COVID instead of long. Right. No, imagine that times six to 12 months. 
I have right now one of my patients, she's been dealing with this since December. So much so that she forgot the code to her house. Like she could not get into her house because she could not, for the life of her, remember her security code. So imagine how, like not being able to remember your address. You're driving, you're trying to get home, and you're like, I, like you literally have a moment of complete brain emptiness. This is what people are experiencing, and particularly for, people, for patients of color, specifically black folks, we already struggle in the healthcare system to be validated, to be heard, to be valued, and to be cared for. Imagine black folks coming into their healthcare providers' offices with these very generic, nondescript symptoms where if you're not familiar with long COVID, or even if you are, but because of bias in medicine, assuming that black folks are, quote unquote, making up symptoms so that they don't have to go to work. That has also happened in patients that I have taken care of. And I know it's happening with my patients. It's likely happening across the country. So we have to think about certain populations and how they may be experiencing long COVID differently. The same thing with children. Children cannot verbalize, I'm experiencing brain fog. Instead, it's acting out. It's changes in their school performance. It's a lot of subtle things that if parents aren't paying close attention to, their little ones may never be diagnosed with long COVID and end up being diagnosed, especially black children, end up being diagnosed with something else like ADHD. So we, in the clinical space, have to, one, do a better job of creating a safe space for people to be able to identify it. I think that the NIH dedicating funds to researching long COVID is awesome, but that's a long-term solution. We need acute, immediate ways of navigating through. Uh, for listeners, I would tell you to really focus on an antioxidant-rich diet, uh, one that's reflective of a Mediterranean diet, a lot of cold water fish, olive oil, avocados, whole grains, lots of green leafy veggies. If you've had COVID and are dealing with long COVID, now's the time to kick the sugar, sugar habit because that is something that can continue to perpetuate inflammation. We're still not clear yet as to why long COVID happens. Some schools of thought believe that there is um, subclinical levels of COVID-19 sort of hanging out and floating around in the body that's triggering this. Others believe that it may have been triggering some slight um, autoimmune response based on the infection. We do not have a solid answer as of yet, but what we do know is that food truly can serve as medicine in these spaces. There are certain supplements that can be taken to help with decreasing inflammation, things like vitamin A, vitamin E, um, making sure that you're getting in your vitamin D to strengthen your immune system and the B complex of vitamins. All of those things can help, but part of it is what the medical system needs to do to better identify it. There needs to be um, a, an algorithm, a list of symptoms. If you're experiencing these things, you are diagnosed with long COVID, and we have to think about what does that translate into in terms of disability and whether or not economically the country can handle of the folks who are unvaccinated and get COVID, 10 to 30% of them will go on to develop long COVID. We do not yet know what the percentage of those that will have more severe symptoms and for how long. But when you think about the financial implications in total for this country while we're battling inflation and all these other things that we're dealing with, how is that going to play out? And then from a mental health standpoint, we are in one of the most significant mental health crises of our time. I have patients battling on COVID that are completely depressed because they 
they don't feel like themselves and their family's not understanding that they are, that they have a medical condition. Instead, they're thinking, if you can just get, if you just get up out of bed, you'd be all right. And that's not the case with long COVID. Two things quickly. One, uh, you're talking about the disparities in terms of marginalized communities. That just brings to me the adage, when white America gets a cold, black America has pneumonia. And you mentioned cold water fish, which I would interpret to be, and Garland is the fisherman, not me, salmon, cod, as opposed to bass, trout, snakehead fish. Why, why cold? Why, why cold? That's the inside joke between Garland and I. Why, uh, why cold water fish? Because they have a higher level of omega threes. You want to make sure that you're getting in all that good, um, all those good fatty acids, and that's definitely going to help with immune response, decreasing inflammation, and um, elevating your antioxidant levels in the body. There was another great piece in the Washington Post today: anger and heartbreak. On bus number 15, it's the story about the pandemic and the impact that the pandemic is having in Denver. And they focus on a bus driver, Suna Karabe, 45 years old. She's been driving the same route for nearly 10 years. And over uh, the, the COVID period, she has started to see just a dramatic increase and change in the ridership on the bus, and she's now having to deal with homeless people. She's having to deal with violent people. She's having to deal with drug addicts. She's having to deal with a whole lot of societal ills that are now manifesting themselves on her bus route. And so I want you to put on your public health hat and and speak, because I thought this was a tremendous story. It was absolutely heartbreaking and gut-wrenching because what this really speaks to is the sociology of this country. Like it, like if, if there was a, if students had some sort of community requirement as like sociology majors, this is what I would have them sit on a bus and ride it all day because the population of people that this bus driver is interacting with really speaks to the lived experience of a good portion of Americans. One, it speaks to what we talked about just a little while ago, the mental health crisis that this country is experiencing the level of violence and confrontation that she experiences as a bus driver, the risk to her safety and her life, not just in terms of her exposure, because given the fact that the country has released any requirement of masks on buses, that automatically puts her at risk. But then the levels of confrontation that, that, that are described in the, in the story are absolutely just breathtaking the, the the mention of a woman who likely had mental health issues who hopped on the bus and then a man just punched her dead in the face, stomped on her chest and then threw her off the bus. And then she later died. Like this is the kind of stuff that the, these bus drivers are dealing with on a daily basis. We already knew that they served as, as frontline workers um, in the middle of the peak of the pandemic. They were being exposed and not protected and ending up, uh, dying. We heard about uh, Jason Hargrove, who was exposed on the bus and then was failed by the medical system because they refused to test him for three days. He ended up dying and his wife had to find out because she called, not the hospital. And so this gives gut-wrenching exposure to what is happening daily in American lives, particularly, as you spoke of, in marginalized communities. I think the bus might be an excellent place for a mental health professional 
and a substance abuse professional to just hang out to be able to provide service. She talks of, describes drug use at the bus stop. They, drugs were so bad they had to shut down the bathrooms because people were going into the bathrooms to shoot up. Like that's the level of, of stress and mental health crisis that we are in. And I think it is an excellent exposure for us who are oblivious to what's happening out on the streets. It, it holds up a mirror to what needs to be fixed in our country. Dr. Yolandra Hancock, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. It's my pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News, Ukraine, quote-unquote, solves Nazi problem with new logo. The change in insignia isn't being made to correct a misperception. It's being made to obscure a correct perception. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an independent investigative journalist and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War, Daniel Lazar. As always, sir, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the Caitlin Johnstone writes, the British Empire rag, The Times, has an article titled Azov Battalion Drops Neo-Nazi Symbol Exploited by Russian Propagandists. And she writes, the Azov Battalion has removed a neo-Nazi symbol from its insignia that has helped perpetuate Russian propaganda about Ukraine being in the grip of far-right nationalism. She says the Times informs us at the unveiling of a new special forces unit in Kharkiv, patches handed to soldiers did not feature the wolf's angel, a medieval German symbol that was adopted by the Nazis and which has been used by the battalion since 2014. Instead, they featured a golden trident, the Ukrainian national symbol worn by other regiments. Dan, in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet says, "'Tis but thy name that is my enemy. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Dan, what's in a symbol? Or as foul, I might add. Um, Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a class, it's a, it's a con job. It's a classic, you know, uh, you know, uh, attempt to pull the wool down over the public side. I mean, what it reminds me, by the way, is that in um, in Syria, uh, around 2014, Al Qaeda rebranded itself as the Al Nusra Front. You know, and, and, and some people were fooled. Those who wanted to be fooled were fooled. But, you know, but for most people, it was obvious that al-Nusra was merely another name for al-Qaeda. And, and similarly, you know, this, this new logo was simply the, you know, a, 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 you know, a disguised form of the old logo. And, um, and, and the Azov Battalion's roots and the ultra-right 
have not changed. And by the way, it's not just the Azov battalions. I mean, what are they going to do about the, all the statues of Stepan Bandera that had statues and plaques that are literally found in three dozen Ukrainian cities? Kiev has a boulevard named after Stepan Bandera. And let me just uh, remind your listeners that Stepan Bandera was a, a, a ferocious Ukrainian nationalist who joined with the Nazis uh, after the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union uh, on June 22nd, 1941. His forces were involved in the death of thousands of Jews. And in one especially horrendous incident with as many as a hundred thousand Poles who were essentially cleansed from a contested area in a, in a, in a, in a province known as Volhynia and a nearby province called East Galicia or Galicia. Um, and so, so Bandera's forces were so vicious that his victims, including his Jewish victims on at least one occasion, actually sought refuge with the Nazi troops. Believe it or not, Jews ran, Jews ran to, the, to the Wehrmacht in order to escape Bandera. That's how bad he was. He was literally worse than the Nazis. And there are statues or plaques of him in three dozen American cities. I'm sorry, Ukrainian cities. And there are well, based on based on the United States taking over the Ukrainian government, might as well be American city. Yes, I'm, I apologize. <laughs> Here's the thing I see, Dan, and that is if we kind of really get down to it, what's going on here? The United States and, of course, it's it's, it's vassals in Europe. But I'm just going to say the U.S. empire is hiding from its citizens. It, what it's really doing, it's hiding from its citizens that it's willing to openly support and arm Nazis, that it's willing to utilize Nazis to align itself with people who are open Nazis and even worse. And this is the part I think that's even worse. The Nazis in Ukraine didn't have nearly the power prior to 2014 when the U.S. took over the Azov Battalion and these other battalions were inculcated officially into the Ukrainian military after the U.S. took over. So it looks as though the U.S. came in and they said, look, these Nazis are very, very going to be handy. So we'll arm them, we'll move them into the military, and might I add, ensure that a number of them were holding some of the highest positions in the government. So we empowered and armed a Nazi regime just because we this was going to be anti-Russian, or one could argue that there were people that Victoria Nuland and some of the people in our um, government are so anti-Russian that they are kind of aligned with the Nazis in that way. Anyway, that's a whole lot, Dan, your thoughts. Well, let, let me read, Dan, before you respond, let me read this. This is from the Crescent on Saturday, March 1st, 2014. In a move that mirrors his policy in Syria, where the U.S. and its Western allies are supporting al-Qaeda-linked terrorists, Barack Obama has chosen to ally himself with, or ally himself, with Ukraine neo-Nazis to oust the democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych. While Obama threatened Russian President Putin of dire consequences today, if Russian troops entered the Crimean region, neo-Nazi gangs have seized and burned government 
government offices, killed riot police, and spread mayhem and terror across the Ukraine. Dan Lazar. Yes, I mean, I mean, it, it is. It, this is a, an immense cover-up. It, it is a shocking and very dangerous cover-up. The the Buffalo shooter was carrying a the emblem. The uh, the um, I think it's called the Black Sun. Uh, Twelve crooked spokes inside a, a circle. That was the official emblem of the, the Azov Battalion. Um, he was an admirer of a uh, Branton Toronto, uh, a Torrent, I believe his name is, who was the shooter who killed 40 Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019. And Torrent says he actually trained with the Azov Battalion. You know, so everybody, of course, you know, as they, of course, as they should, Everyone decries the killings in Buffalo. But what no one admits is the U.S. is training ideologically similar forces in the Ukraine. And when I say ideologically similar, I mean right down to the emblems they wear on their, on their, on their, their, their fighting gear, on their, um, their, uh, Fatigues in the other, there was a bulletproof vest that the shooter in Buffalo was wearing. I'm sorry. So, you know, so, so this is completely outrageous. This sends cross signals. Uh, it, it, it suggests that some Nazis are good and some Nazis are not so good. Uh, it completely uh, undermines any attempt to, uh, to fight the ultra right. Um, and and, and it, it allows Nazis to slip in through the back door. And why should we be allowing this? Because those Nazis are killers. They will kill people. They'll kill black people. They'll kill Jewish people. They'll kill a lot of people. You know, and we should not be permitting, though, you know, our government should not be in, in business with those elements. But yet that is exactly the case in the Ukraine. But what Joe Biden said in Buffalo is he talks about terrorism, terrorism, domestic terrorism. He talks about white supremacy, a hate that through the media and politics, the Internet has radicalized, angry, alienated and lost individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced. And then he goes on even to talk about we heard the chance you will not replace us in Charlottesville. So he uses all of this verbiage and all of this imagery, but then he turns around and signs the bill to send $40 billion to the very people that he's saying are infiltrating, whose ideology is infiltrating and poisoning American politics. It's 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 thoroughly, thoroughly outrageous. Uh, but but they, this is par for the course of the American government. I mean, after after nine eleven, when it was clear that there was major involvement by the Saudi fa- uh, royal family, and 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 that operation, which 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 killed three thousand people, just about four or five miles south of where I'm now sitting. You know, so, you know, 3,000 people were killed. The U.S. government did not try to honestly ferret out all those who were responsible for, the, for, the, uh, for that atrocity. To the contrary, 
they moved to protect them. And George Bush, I mean, George Bush, sorry again, Joe Biden may soon be traveling to Riyadh to, to make nice to Mohammed bin Salman, part of the same royal family, um, in order to get him to, 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 to pump more gas. And meanwhile, the murder, <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got a cold coming through. The murder of, a, of that Washington Post columnist uh, is just swept under the rug. So the administration doesn't care. It talks big. It talks, uh, it, it, it adopts a you know, high moral tone. It says you know, how morally outraged it is. And then it turns around and does the opposite. This is completely outrageous. I'm, I, as you can tell, I'm really quite beside myself. I agree with you. And, and you know, here's the thing. I truly believe this. These people made this move at the behest of the U.S. State Department slash Intel. It was a PR move. People like us and lots of other people, I saw Jimmy Dore all over the place, all over online, was saying, look at the Buffalo shooter. The guy's got a black son just like the Azov Nazis. Wait a minute. Look at the Christ Church. What in the the world's going on here? And they were like, oh, no, we've been outed. That's all it was. Oh, no, we've been outed. Quick, change the patch. Keep the goose stepping. They can yell Sieg Heil, have all the swastika tattoos they want. All of that stuff's fine, but we got to change that darn patch, Dan, because it looks bad. That's what's so cynical about this thing. Yeah. I, I, might I add, by the way, that these elements in the Ukraine have also been involved in anti-Gypsy or anti-Roma, to use the proper name, uh, pogroms, where they have actually killed people. <laughs> it's impossible to, to have a gay pride demonstration in Kiev. Because these same elements will attack it, beat the crap out of the out of the demonstrators. Okay, so the, so the State Department, no, I'm sorry, the, the, the U.S. Democrats rely heavily on gay support. They rely heavily on minority support of various types. You know, so but yet yet they are they are funneling money to the persecutors, to the violent opponents of gays and minorities in the Ukraine. Uh, so when are people going to wake up? When are they going to realize that, they're, that the people they elect are just like, you know, are just, you know, spinning yarns or pulling the wool over their, over their eyes or engaging in double talk or, or doing or saying one thing and going out and doing another? Well, here's one thing, Dan, that w- might bring some people to reality is when a lot of the weapons that the United States has sent into the region that have now already made their way onto the black market, the Stinger missiles and some of these other things, find their way into the hands of real terrorists and airliners start getting shot down. And other types of atrocities are created because now the black market is awash with the weapons that are supposed to have made their way to the Ukrainian front. We got 45 seconds. Yes, that is absolutely, that is absolutely correct. And that, that, by the way, happens in every war. <laughs> I'm sorry. But there's, there's every reason to think it'll be especially bad in this one. And um, there are, there are 30,000 foreign volunteers, many of them ultra-rightists in the Ukraine. And those people are a time bomb. Okay, and this is what the U.S. is creating. 
Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece, while China, keen to ward off U.S. sanctions as long as possible, is lagging its RIC partners, Iran and Russia, are doing the legwork to break the West's global financial grip. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, the first Eurasia Economic Forum held last week in Bishkek, uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, should be regarded as a milestone in setting the parameters for the geo-economic integration of the Eurasian heartland. I was saying to Garland, uh, Dr. Tahid, in one of our breaks, that we're going to look 10 years from now, we're going to look back at this moment, and we're going to say this was the beginning of the tectonic shift in the geopolitical landscape. Uh, I said it, this is the World War II moment of, of, our, of our time, uh, Dr. Tahid. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. This is all, of course, going towards uh, replacing the dollar as the single uh, currency. Uh, Euro is in there, but the euro is, is, is uh, uh, in terms of dollars, uh, as a single currency for, for trade. And if the splitting of countries uh, over the sanctioning of Russia uh, says anything, 80% of the world's population is not going along with the sanctions. And they're going to have to figure out what their next economic move is, how they're going to get the things they need, uh, particularly countries in South America and and Africa and, and, and Asia, uh, how they're going to get the, the commodities they need, how they're going to get the technical skill and knowledge to, to build uh, what they need to build, healthcare, and so forth. And uh, since they've already decided not to go along with the U.S. and Europe with sanctions on Russia, uh, I think this this is uh, portending uh, a significant change going forward. You know, one of the thing examples I see is uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. The um, the uh, chair of the African Union, Macky Sallis, uh, was recently in Moscow, and he was talking about basically, man, Africa, we got to eat. We got, you know, sanctions or no sanctions, we got to figure out how we can move currency, we can move whatever we want, but we got to move wheat back to Africa because people got to eat biscuits. Um, and and uh, what are your thoughts on that that particular meeting and, and you know, what, what, what it means? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, according to, to news reports, uh, uh, wheat is not able to be uh, shipped by, by tanker anymore. 
uh, out of the Black Sea. Now, some are blaming it on the Russians and others are are, are saying it's the Ukrainians who have uh, mined uh, the ports and so forth. But, but needless to say that, that the, the shipments are not going and uh, those shipments that would have gone to Africa uh, will, will, will need to go. Uh, and so some alternative route needs to be found. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 from, just from looking at the map, I would imagine that those alternative routes are, are not too hard uh, to, to find uh, by air uh, in, into various African countries. But those countries, African countries, which have depended upon the U.S. dollar in order to get the funding to, to import things into their, their countries, um, are, are needing to make some, some changes. Otherwise, we will have famine in Africa and South America, and that famine will lead to political turmoil. So governments that, that do nothing to address these issues are going to be replaced by governments that, that will. Now, that, that's going to be bloody. If that's happened, and we don't want we don't want that to happen. What we want is uh, for the arrangements to, to buy wheat and other commodities from Russia to to go forward. Now, uh, it, it's possible that the Europeans may relent, looking at the bad publicity they would get from from denying wheat to, to, to starving Africans and allow that kind of humanitarian trade if you will. But if not, I, I think the Russians and the Chinese uh, and, and, and Indians are, are well situated to, to engage in that trade. I mean, India is on the Indian Ocean, which uh, borders uh, eastern, the eastern coast of Africa as well. Well, I don't know if you're a betting man, but I wouldn't put my money on the EU. Uh, doing humanitarian efforts uh, to, to the the bastion of white supremacy, helping people on the continent. Um, I, I want to read this to just to to try and, and give folks a really clear understanding of what you were saying uh, at the top of this discussion. Sergey Glazyev, Russia's minister in charge of integration and macroeconomics of the Eurasia Economic Union. Uh, is coordinating the desi to design an alternative monetary financial system, a de facto post-Bretton Woods III. According to Glazyev, the forum, quote, discussed the model of a new global settlement currency pegged to baskets of national currencies and commodities. The introduction of this currency instrument in Eurasia will entail the collapse of the dollar system and the final undermining of the U.S. military and political power. And I want to stress Eurasia and Asia. I really want to highlight there uh, uh, Professor Tahi. Yes, this, yes, this new currency system, which would be pegged to commodities, is a is a very different uh, kind of view on on how you stabilize the the prices of international trade, as opposed to having a currency uh, currencies that are pegged to the dollar that are uh, essentially at the whim of the of the U.S. economy, um, which which is a financialized economy. Uh, it is not. It, it is less and less a commoditized economy, and so when you have a uh, building of trade in the rest of the world, the majority of the world, that eighty percent, in terms of commodities, then you set you stabilize the the value of currency by what people can produce. 
which incentivizes uh, countries to produce and trade and not uh, to be concerned so much about who's going to get the extra interest or the, the what's called the rent payment from the trade, who's going to benefit and who's going to lose. Uh, you can participate if you can produce something. And uh, all of these countries are able to produce something that other countries will want. So pe- pegging these currency values to commodities as opposed to a financial instrument like a dollar is, I think, going to be a game changer as well. You know, in listening to you explain that, and thank you so much, that was a phenomenally simple and easy to understand explanation. I would think that this that that moving to a uh, a a a economic system based upon commodities would also incentivize peace, because as you've said before, countries that trade tend not to go to war. So if you are able to incentivize a economic system that isn't financialized that but is actually based on production and trade you i think one of the uh underlying elements of or outcomes of that is going to be a more peaceful world well yes and and i'm not i'm not the first one to think about that um uh adam smith put this model out in the wealth of nations, where he argued simply that the wealth of nations doesn't depend on the amount of gold a country has in its treasury, but on the productivity of its people. And, you know, those you have to produce things. It doesn't matter how much gold you have in the treasury. If you have no bread, then people will starve. And so, and so moving away from the westernized, financialized system, which where everything is measured in, to, in, in how much gold is in the treasury, uh, to a system in which uh, uh, things are measured in terms of what people can produce, food, clothing, and shelter, and so forth, is actually going back to Adam Smith's way of breaking from the mercantilist. Exactly, the mercantile uh, system. Process. Right, the mercantile system, which, which, which uh, in Europe uh, uh, exacerbated 100 years of war to a system that would be based on commodities that would be more peaceful. And just, and just real quickly, so people understand, at that time, the mercantile system had to do with the power of a country was based upon how much gold it had in its in its coffers. And so they, they traversed the world trying to amass more gold because he with the gold ruled. And Adam Smith was saying, you move off of that and you move to a production economy, a whole lot of people benefit. Yes, and, and of course, because there's only so much gold or you can get it out of the ground uh, at, at, a, at a slow pace, countries would compete and go to war in order to control gold fields. Now, the other thing, I, when I look at that, I say, okay, um, in, in reality, a country like Russia has commodities. The U.S. has commodities. We can kind of make it through. Canada has commodities. Um, uh, China produces a lot of things, industry. They can. But when I look at an, a particular area of the world, Europe, they don't have the natural resources. They did have cheap energy so they could produce industrially. But now that the cheap energy is gone, their industry is going out the, out the window. When I see Africa, well, Africa, Latin America, in a new system such as that, they can be very productive because they have a lot of natural resources, lithium, oil, you name it. I see Europe as the guy that's really left out of this party. 
Yes, and they have to decide as to whether or not they're going to become vassals of the U.S. or whether or not they're going to to uh, uh, to keep their their uh, domestic interests close uh, and and trade with Russia and China, which are uh, a lot closer than 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 the U.S. Uh, great historian Walter Rodney laid out the fact that it was the lack of resources in Africa, excuse me, in Europe, that led to. Uh, the need to colonize and enslave other people around the world, in order to in order to uh, come to in order to utilize this country to subsidize the lack of commodities in Europe, and so Europe Europe has had this is not a new problem for Europe it's an old problem. How they're going to solve it is going to be uh, either to the benefit or the detriment of European citizens. Uh, in fact, Walter Rodney was how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Any and uh, Repsol to start exporting Venezuelan oil to Europe. The U.S. issued licenses for oil companies to operate in Venezuela. I find that interesting. First of all, well, you're chuckling. Go ahead, because we only have about two minutes left, so I'm not going to waste that time. Go ahead. Well, I, I remember when we discussed this some while ago of, of the Biden going to Maduro saying, you know, I'll let you out of the sanctions if you if you uh, sell us some oil. Uh, that oil needs to go to Europe. Uh, Garland said it reeks of desperation. It certainly wasn't wasn't planned, uh, but uh, the U.S. is realizing that uh, you know Europe is holding its hand out, saying you know we're going to get less Russian oil, so we need to get it from somewhere. And Biden understands that if he ships American oil over to Europe, then the price of oil here will will skyrocket. So he's trying to get an alternative supply. Now in that in that article in the Spanish. Maduro uh, says that he hopes this will be a, a beginning of removing the cruel and inhuman sanctions that have been put on it. So Maduro is looking for this to be a leeway to, to removing all sanctions, not just to sell oil to, to, to Europe. This is this is an an additional conversation to what we were just talking about with the first Eurasia Economic Forum in that, to me, it's another example of how the United States is losing its grip. And this is on the energy market. And many would say one of the reasons the United States started this fight with Russia was because the United States wants to control the energy market. Yes, yes, the, the petrodollar is is the thing that dry, has driven uh, the economy for for uh, over a century, and uh, now that uh, Russia is a big oil producer and is looking to to join a different uh, system other than the petrodollar system, uh, that cannot be allowed to occur. Uh, and so anything that needs to be done to, to address that, the neocons want to dominate militarily. The neolibs want to dominate economically. They both want to dominate. And so the Biden administration is getting it from both sides in terms of what it needs to do. And the outcome is that, that the Biden administration needs to control Russia. Uh, in order to prevent the slippage of the U.S. as the number one economy. Dr. Linwood Tawheed, as always, sir. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. RT reports half a million small businesses in Britain could go bust. The government is being called on to to provide support. If a new wave of government assistance is not released immediately, some 500,000 small businesses in the UK will go bankrupt within weeks. The chairman of the Federation of Small Businesses, FSB, Martin McTague, has warned. For further insight into this, we turn it to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C., He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. Welcome back, Dr. Walalu. Pleasure to be with you, Galen. And also, uh, what's the name of your uh, your uh, YouTube show, and where can people find that? It's uh, called the, the Geopolitics in Conflict. As it's it's uh, on YouTube. So. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Great show. I would recommend it to everyone. All right, so let's talk about that. You know, here's the first thing I thought, Dr. Walalu. You know, okay, they're having problems, but the problems are systemic. The problems are uh, uh, because of the rise of energy costs and general costs. So let's just say for the sake of argument that the government comes in and says, okay, we're bailing you out and giving you some money to make for six weeks, eight weeks, two months. Then they're going to crash anyway. Your thoughts? Well, Garland, it's it's getting far beyond that ability for the government just to come in. We're talking about the inflation in England which, by the way, the government is lying to the Brits. Uh, the, the inflation is about to hit 10 percent. I mean, you're looking at even, even the way for your listeners to understand how serious that is. The inspector general of the British police, okay, surprised everyone now by recommending that the police use their power with a lot of rationality and wisdom in dealing with those involved in food theft wow. and taking into account that the country is in unprecedented high cost crisis. So when you start to think in terms of even the cops now will have to think, you can arrest somebody who's stealing food because they have to survive. And yet the government in England is going about funding Ukraine, uh, the, uh, the Azov. Uh, regiments and so the, sending weapons, sending money, and even now arming based on some research that I found out. They are sending money now to uh, to Moldova out of all the places while the economy inside England is going down the drain. That's how serious that is. There's a second story also, and I find that pretty interesting. Citizens are given permission in Poland to correct, collect branches from forests amid soaring energy costs. Authorities in Warsaw have allowed citizens to forage for firewood in forests to keep their homes heated amid spiraling energy costs. So these people have said, we're not going to buy gas from rubles. We're not going to buy this from Russia. We're going to show this from Russia. I don't see the Russians foraging for wood and nuts and berries in the forest. They have, these people have taken themselves back to the Stone Ages, Dr. Walalu. And it appears to me that the sanctions against Russia are at the heart of their economic problems. Oh, that's for sure, Garland, because now people, and when I say people, I'm referring to the average citizens that they have to manage this daily life. Now they're starting to feel the pinch. And they, they, they didn't just start it. It's been for the last two and a half months. You know, they started to realize, you know, the government is embarking on some policies that goes contradictory to the welfare of citizens. 
you know, the government is supposed to be there to serve people. And now the Poles, like the, the Dutch now, they're going to be feeling that soon. The Finnish people, Bulgarians, even the Germans now, they are realizing, you know, maybe this policy is, it's not maybe. They are realizing it's a fact that the policies this government have embarked on are not working to the benefit of the average citizens of whatever country we mentioned. And this explains now why you heard about French president saying, well, we should not humiliate Russia, but we should figure out a ramp or something too. That's about to save face because they are realizing economically they have been screwed, if I may use the term. Why? Because they can't survive. They, Europe, cannot survive without Russian oil because they were getting it for so cheap and they were getting it, uh, they were taking it for granted. And now you got the Pol- Poland, Holland, Bulgaria, Finland, and soon some other countries, they're going to feel the pinch. So here's my question, you know, and, and uh, you and Dr. Leon and I have had this same discussion for months now, and that is, how long can, you know, at first the people in, in Europe were all, they had their blue and yellow flags, hooray, we're on board, you know, we love Ukraine and stop the Ruskies and all that stuff. And we discussed this months ago, and the discussion amongst the three of us was, when the economic pain hits, ah, that uh, fervor for the Azov Battalion is going to fall. How do you see this going into the summer, and particularly when, you, when it starts getting cold and they need, more, um, uh, they need more energy? How do you see these economic and social issues affecting the leaders of these various countries and their policies towards these sanctions? Well, probably what you're going to be witnessing is, first of all, a social unrest. Because when people start to sort of feel hungry, it's human nature. You have to do whatever you need to do to survive. It's going to be the social unrest first. Second, you're going to see a wave of that the people in those countries in Europe start now to elect some very, very either far right, far left, or some conservative that they go the opposite, you know, some sort of a demagogue, if you will, because the policies of the current leaders are inefficient, and they are seeing this. The Germans are finding that out with Olaf Scholz. The guy's becoming like uh, some sort of uh, uh, just a figurehead of sorts. Why? And, and, and I'm basing this on conversations that I had with. People on the ground is because during the last 15 years under the reign of Angela Merkel, the Germans didn't have to deal with this. And now they are realizing Olaf Scholz is just following blindly, like others, like Poland, for example, Bulgaria. You got Finland now. You got some other countries. They are realizing that the economic aspects of it is what's going to turn the tables around. And this explains why Germany as of a week and a half ago, had a, a virtual call with China. Despite what you hear about, you know, you're going to contain China so forth, the Germans are thinking, what's in it for us economically? Heck, with what the U.S. says, we're going to have to align our interests with China. Talk about just the practical. When I read this story, polls may forage for food to heat homes. Citizens are given permission to collect branches from forests amid soaring energy costs. 
Uh, authorities in Warsaw are allowing citizens to forage for firewood, and only branches can be gathered at the same time that the, the, the collected branches can't be thicker than seven centimeters. And then they have to go and pay for the branches that they've collected. A, I'll be amazed if anybody actually does that because <laughs> I can't imagine I can't imagine somebody in West Virginia having to seeing thinking that they got to get permission to go into the woods to collect branches and then they're going to and carrying a seven millimeter gauge to pass each branch through to make sure that it fits and collectors will have to pay between seven and 30 zoltis which is seven dollars and two cents for approximately a quarter of a cubic meter of firewood dr walalu that's insane well it is indeed it is indeed, Walmart, because that's now defied the logic of what was taking place just about a year and a half ago in the poll. And, and I was in, in, in Poland a couple of times, sort of, yes, it was back then a couple of years ago, but I've been around just for the last three or four years. And then everybody was happy in, you know, sort of in, in, in Warsaw or Krakow or Zakopane or whatever. You know, everybody's living their life and moving on. Now they're going to see the other side, the dark side of the, the policies that the Polish government has embarked on. This is no different than what exactly uh, now you're witnessing in, your, in, uh, in England, which the government is not saying. The poverty and hunger are going up. As a matter of fact, it was a statement uh, that I came across by this person who was a, a British uh, uh, channel housewife. And he stated, and I quote here, I gave up a meal a day so I could feed my children, end of quote. It's shocking. It is shocking to hear this. I know UK is not part of the EU, but it's still Europe is Europe. And this is where it goes back to the argument. And I remember saying this about a month ago when we had the conversation about this, this topic. And I said, Europe will always be like the child that never grows up and is in constant need of direction, discipline, and orientation. Yeah, the other thing I think you're going to see eventually is a an anger over the uh, the refugee crisis. That's not discussed a lot, but I think that's going to be a monster. Right now, in Poland, they've got like three million refugees or something, and now they're finding out they can't afford them. They're starting to say to Norway, hey, can we have some of your gas money? And Norway's like, ah, that ain't happening. They're saying to the EU, hey, we want some money. They even said to the U.S., oh, yeah, that $40 billion, can you distribute it out of one of our cities? Because everybody wants to peel off a piece. The other part of this is... The Ukrainian refugee crisis is going to be very expensive, and the people in the countries are going to be angry at the Ukrainian refugees saying, well, you guys are getting free money or you want jobs and we don't have them. It's going to be a mess. Uh, um, I, I had one other thing, Dr. Walalu, and all they had to do in the very beginning was say, okay, NATO will be a neutral country, and this just didn't have to happen. Your thoughts? In fact, in fact let me, if I could follow on that question and, and ask this for some perspective. Dr. Walalu, do you expect the reaction to these Ukrainian refugees to be similar to what happened in the United States when the Irish came, when the Italians came, when the Greeks came? There was always this 
attack on their ethnicity by white Americans because this was they became a cheaper labor force and all of the dynamics that refugees will bring into a new environment. Well, actually, you are absolutely right, because history provides us a lesson about this. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about the recent attacks that Ukrainians are experiencing inside Poland by the Poles. And I have someone who called Poland to check on this fact, and it was indeed confirmed. What you are witnessing, which the Western media, by the way, not disclosing that, is that if, they can, if you happen to be Ukrainian and you get caught in the street, water, they will beat you to death. And because the they getting and why they getting angry? It's because the Polish government and and we stay with the example of Poland. The Polish government is giving the Ukrainians free passes on a train, free housing. They're helping with the with the monthly expenses, while the Poles themselves have to pay for all that. And now you add the energy crisis to the mix, you can just see where this is going. And this is just in Poland as an example. You got the same sentiment. Not to the extent of the refugees in Germany, for example, in France, in Bulgaria, in other countries that they are starting to really realize those politicians. And England is the perfect example for it because the Brits, the British government that is not disclosing the truth, when you have half of the branches, banking, the financial branches of the banks are being closed. And it tells you right there where the economic stuff is. Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Antiwar.com entitled, Lies About Russia Still Matter A Lot. Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook recently admitted under oath that prior to the 2016 election, Mrs. Clinton personally approved feeding the media a bogus story that Donald Trump had a back channel to Alpha Bank in Moscow. Why does this matter? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the Word, the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. He served as an infantry intelligence officer, then became a CIA analyst for 27 years. He's on the steering group of veteran intelligence professionals for Sanity, one of its co-founders. And he's the author of this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Thank you. So... Ray, why does this matter a lot? A short answer is that uh, for five years, Americans have been bombarded uh, with this legend that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, hacked into the election process in 2016 and uh, uh, is responsible for four years of Donald Trump and all manner of other evil. the reality is that uh, most of that is best based on lies 
But for five years, you have a populace uh, that just can't get away from the idea that the Russians are evil incarnate and that uh, Putin is the devil himself. Now, uh, the most egregious example arose at a recent trial here in Washington, in Washington. And uh, as you you said at the intro there, uh, the trial involved a uh, or revealed that Clinton's campaign manager uh, briefed her on this hoax, this back channel uh, from the Trump campaign to Alpha Bank in Moscow. It was a bogus story uh, that Robbie Mook, her campaign manager briefed her on it and got her explicit okay. Not only that, but the idea was to give it to some sort of media with the with the suggestion that the FBI really ought to look into this. I mean, after all, this is the candidate. The, the election is eight days away on the 8th of November. My God, if he's in communication with the Russians, we ought to look into it. But all that happened that all happened, and Slate obliged by publishing an article, and then immediately Hillary Clinton tweeted about it, saying, this secret hotline may be the key to unlocking the mystery of Trump's ties to Russia. Now, we all know by this point that after a long time, Bob Mueller could find no Trump ties to Russia, but this didn't have to be accurate. This didn't have to withstand scrutiny. This is just weeks before the election. If they found out later it was bogus, who would care? Who would care? Who would be held responsible? So that's how this thing works. We have emails showing that the technical people that were asked to devise this story to manufacture uh, communications between Trump and Alpha Bank were appalled at what they found. Hey, look, you got no case here. This, <laughs> this is going to be shot full of holes as soon as some experts who know what's going on expose it. And uh, the answer, of course, was, well, how soon would they do that? Well, it'd take a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> the election is just one week away. So there it is. In all this transparency, um, she was leading this charge on this one very damaging thing before the election. And of course, after the election, she and her minions have spread this, this group of lies to the point where Americans still believe it. Now, the other main, the other main wedge here uh, was the story that Russia hacked into the DNC emails to embarrass Hillary Clinton. Why? Well, because those Democratic National Committee emails revealed that, <laughs> pure and simple, let's not beat around the bush, she stole the Democratic nomination from Bernie Sanders. The way the primaries were stacked, the way everything was stacked, he didn't have a prayer. Uh, it doesn't speak well of his guts, uh, realizing that and not speaking out. Anyhow, they revealed that. And so it was very damaging. And they decided, well, they needed to do something. They blamed it on Russian hacking. Now, five years later, I dare say if you took a poll, 80% of, of Americans believe that the Russians hacked into those DNC emails and gave them to WikiLeaks for publication. That is a bald-faced lie. And now we have proof from the head of the cyber firm 
the cyber firm that James Comey, the FBI director, deferred to for some reason best known to him and to us. Uh, he said, you know, why don't you, CrowdStrike, look into this. Uh, we don't want FBI doesn't want to look at it. So CrowdStrike reported for months and months and months, ah, oh, yeah, look, look at this, uh, Russian hack, Russian hack. And then when the head of CrowdStrike went under oath before the House Intelligence Committee, they asked him, what about the, this exfiltration? When did these emails leave? And he had to say, oh, I forgot to tell you. We have no evidence that any emails left electronically, uh, that there was any hack by Russia or by anybody else. It doesn't seem, well, there was no hack. Well, why did you say it was a hack? He was asked. He said, well, there's circumstantial evidence. Uh, the Russians didn't want Hillary to win. And this is the famous ruse here. This is consistent with what Russians have done in the past and, and other countries have done in the past. That's circumstantial evidence. And until we were finished with our forensic examination, uh, we went with the circumstantial evidence. Thank you very much. So that is also out. Now, what's the, what's the whole story on that? Uh, Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, kept that testimony, sworn testimony by the head of CrowdStrike, locked up for two and a half years, okay? So we're talking the testimony, December 5, 2017. Schiff was finally obliged to release it on May 7th, 2020. So what's this? Oh, this is June 7th, 2020. Wow. That's two years and one month ago. Do Americans know about that? No, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post forgot to publish that Russian hacking was a mistake. It, at best, was a deliberate ruse at worst. And the people who investigated reported precisely the same thing two and a half years ago. And now it's two and a half years plus two years on the part of the New York Times, two years and one month, uh, putting that, uh, well, just deep sixing it in the Potomac. And so most Americans know that they've been had, don't know that they've been had. And, you know, I wouldn't harp on this were it not for the fact that we have more evidence now, and it's getting really, really dangerous in our relationship with Russia. It could come to, uh, to, to a no good end, as the Chinese like to say. There's even talk of some nuclear exchanges. Another thing that I think is of consequence, today, uh, June 7th, 55 years ago, Israel admitted to killing 34 U.S. sailors. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before you do that, I, there's one, oh, more, one more point I just want to make oh, okay, here go ahead. about what Ray just said. Ray, there are people listening to what you've just said, and particularly with your saying it on this show, that they would say, oh, there is Ray McGovern. He's this bleeding heart liberal, and, and you know, he's left, 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 left. And I remember having you on my other show, Ray, years ago, and I made a comment about Dick Cheney being a neocon. And you said, quote, Wilmer, there's nothing conservative about Dick Cheney. I'm conservative. He's a fascist. 
<laughs> I just wanted to make so those listening to Ray McGovern thinking that Ray McGovern is some bleeding heart liberal and not even really to put conservative in any real political context. I just wanted to make that point because that's not who Ray McGovern is. Go ahead, Garland. So the USS Liberty, Ray, if you could, um, a lot of Americans don't know about that. If you could kind of, you know, talk about it a little bit. Yeah, well, um, tomorrow, actually, uh, June 8th is the 55th anniversary of uh, when the Israelis shot up a intelligence collection ship in international waters killing 35 sailors and uh, wounding over 170 out of a crew that was uh, was just less than uh, 300, I think it was. So, you know, what we have here is a uh, demonstration of um, the impunity that Israel exercises when it realizes that it can get away with murder. Now, the recent... Uh, was just about three weeks ago, that Shireen, the uh, the wonderful press reporter, uh, an American citizen, was snipered to death, a shot right between her eyebrow and her helmet. Terrific shot by a sniper. Dead was Shireen. Now, um, the Israelis also killed Rachel Corey back right before the war on Iraq. Rachel Corey was an American volunteer in Gaza, helping some of the Palestinians rebuild their homes, teaching their children, and so forth. Uh, she was killed on the 16th of March, 2003, uh, right before the invasion of Iraq. Uh, the, the Israelis knew damn well that there would be no news coverage of racial Corey's murder, uh, given the fact that everyone knew that the war was coming and that people were gearing up on CNN and everywhere else to do the war coverage, war coverage. So what happened here, we know uh, very simply, uh, and Admiral Thomas Moore, who had been, well, chief of naval operations and also chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, he did a little private inquiry and he found out that the Israelis full well knew what the USS Liberty was, that it was collecting communications on Israel as well as on the Arabs, and that it tried, it tried desperately to kill it. Uh, that is, to sink it uh, with the death of all the crew. Now, the, the Israelis said, oh, this is a terrible mistake. But the way they explain the mistake uh, is just not credible. They said they, they mixed it up with a, a little raft uh, or a little boat or ship, I guess you could call it, because it was carrying a couple of mules and a couple of other animals. Now, the Israelis did copious reconnaissance on the USS Liberty before they tried to shoot it up. The final thing here, and this is kind of nice, uh, there was one seaman there from Texas. His name was Terry Halbarzieh. And after the Israelis shot out all the working antennae and flooded the deck with napalm, he went up to Captain McGonagall. He said, Captain, I request permission to go try to link up with this bailer wire and this other wire I have, link up this, uh, the radio, this uh, communication thing that, that we weren't able to fix before, and the Israelis didn't knock it out because it wasn't working. McGonagall says, yeah, right. You're gonna, what, are you going to swim? You're going to swim across that napalm? Sir. Request permission. Permission granted. Terry goes, swims across the napalm, 
gets this thing up and gets an SOS out to the rest of the Sixth Fleet. The Israelis intercept that SOS and get the hell out of ter- out of the territory, get the hell out of the area. Now, before they did that, they tried to shoot up the uh, the lifeboats that were being lowered down with the wounded. It was just a terrible thing. And as I say, 34 died, 170 plus, they say 171 were wounded. And uh, the worst thing, of course, was these people were told never, ever to breathe to anyone, much less the press, that the Israelis did this. And, uh, you know, even the Navy covered it up. I did some major major articles on this, and I referred to that in a piece that's coming out tonight on antiwar.com. I dare say it's worth reading because it does show, it does show that when people, other countries learn that they can get away with murder, and the President of the United States, the Congress of the United States, and the U.S. Navy will cover up for them, we're in trouble. We're really in trouble. And we are in trouble. Ray McGovern, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Most welcome. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 